sugar coating, no spin, taking the hard knocks. We're learning from failure so you can succeed. This is the Philosophy Audio and Video Cast with Gabe Zickerman. In the time of chimpanzees, I was a monkey. Butane in my veins and I'm out to cut the chunky with the plastic eyeballs. Spray paint the vegetables, dog boots. Hello, everybody. It's Gabe Zickerman, and I'm coming to you live from Los Angeles, California with a, a new podcast series, actually, and video podcast series called Philosophy. I have become very interested over the last little while in failure. And I think failure is very important. You need to be able to uh, fail before you succeed. And most people who have been very successful have a number of failures. But my observation was that nobody really teaches you how to fail well. So that, you know, in Silicon Valley, they, we talk a lot about like, um, oh, you know, fail fast, break things. Uh, but in practice, there are still significant penalties for failure in most parts of our culture. And, you know, from a very early age, from childhood, you know, we're taught that failure is bad. You know, when you put your hand up in class and answer the question incorrectly, what you get mostly is negative pushback, either from your teachers or from other students. And I think that's repeated elsewhere. This lack of uh, flexibility around failure, I think hurts our ability to be successful. And, and the way that I think about this is if you're not failing regularly, if you're not currently on the precipice of a failure, meaning you can see a failure in your immediate view, you're probably not pushing yourself hard enough. You're probably not working to achieve the things that you uh, really want to achieve because you have to put yourself at risk. You have to do things that create a risk of failure. And oftentimes the things that we're most afraid of um, in order to know, you know, in order to get to the place where you, you know, want to be in your life. And so I'm starting this series to talk to some of my friends, some people that I really respect and admire about their own personal experiences with failure. One of the key things that I, I want to create is an environment in which we can have more open and honest dialogue about, about our failures, how we handled it. And hopefully these will present lessons for you. And so by way of the quick intro, I'll tell you about mine. Um, you know, a few years ago, I started a uh, venture-backed startup um, called Onward, and our mission was to help people um, uh, overcome their technology-based addictions. And many of you will recognize that, you know, three years ago, that would have been very uh, advanced. And today, there's a lot of discussion in the media about uh, technology addiction and technology overuse and so on. And, um, and yet we had a, um, you know, despite being in an environment that was, um, you know, really ripe for this, I've spent the last 10 years working on gamification and making things more addictive. Um, you know, we, we were nonetheless not able to be successful with me as, as CEO and co-founder. And this caused a lot of like, you know, personal angst for me. So for example, like every time I see my, um, you know, my bio, somewhere, um, you know, it, it makes reference to Onward. And I feel this like little kind of pang in my heart, you know, like, oh, I fucked that up. And I want to, um, I, I want to find a way to both learn from that experience, extract the important lessons, and also to feel better about it, because I want it to be part of my learning, not something that I avoid, not something I put to the side and say, let's not talk about, it. let's, let's not focus on that. And one technique that I found that works really well in my life is it kind of exposure therapy, talking about my problems to other people, talking about the things that I, 
I fear the most to other people because nothing, uh, nothing feels better than a little bit of sunshine in that kind of dark, dark place in your, in your heart. So hopefully you're all uh, very eager to be uh, successful and you want to take this journey uh, to understand failure a little bit better. And so um, our first guest, an amazing guy, um, a friend of mine, very talented, technologist and humorist, um, Alex Kruger has agreed to join us today. Hello, Alex. How's it going, Gabe? So good. And this is not at all fake because we didn't say hi to each other before this video started. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm so glad that you could be here, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So do you want to tell everybody who may, maybe the people who don't know you what, who you are? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I live in LA, uh, and I come from San Diego to Chicago to New York and now here. Um, uh, background about me, I was a first employee at a company called Belly, uh, which was based in Chicago. We were a point-of-sale loyalty startup, uh, raised a pretty solid amount of money from like Andreessen, NEA. Uh, we grew that. I was the first, I was in charge of sales and figuring out product market fit, how to scale that, hire, like go in different cities, hire GMs. Uh, and then I grew a company called Spot Hero. I was in charge of running, again, sales and BD. Uh, and that was a blast. Um, another like um, fast growing startup. It was more in the like hotels.com for parking space. Mm. Um, so we partner with parking companies who are driving around a city. You're like, what do I do? Where do I park? And then you buy a spot on your phone. We take a cut. Um, grew that and then um, jumped aboard uh, starting a company called Grace, which is I think what we're here to talk about. Mm. And then, which we can get into later. And then helped grow a company called Skylight. And now I'm at a company called Wisecrack. Awesome. Uh, yeah. And we met during the time that you were doing grace and, um, and going through a Techstars accelerator in Los Angeles, uh, for that company. So, so in that list of things, in that list of experiences, and, and you've left off the fact that you're a funny guy who also, um, who also writes and does stand up. Um, but in, in that list of things that you just described, your kind of like life history, what's the thing that you're most proud of? What success uh, do you feel the strongest about that you that you often like to share with people? Um, I'd say, so I guess those are five swings, um, and I don't know if there's a roundabout answer, but five swings, and of those swings, I think two I'd consider failures. Where for me, a, like, and this is probably not a great way to think about it because there's a framing issue here, but failure for me, as far as it's mostly defined, is like, was there a net worth increase for me? Right, that was okay, and so I'd say there were you know, two failures and three successes slash pending from there. Um, but I do, I actually don't think I learned more from the successes than I did from the failures. I think it's actually totally the other way around, which is interesting. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the reason why I wanted to have these conversations because I agree with you. And I feel like many technology people in particular, the successful ones like Steve Jobs or whatever, they tend to bury their failures when they talk about their life story. So we know Steve Jobs failures, but we don't he wasn't always the most forthcoming person talking about them. Um, why, why do you think technology people like to um, rewrite history when it comes to, you know, if they've had a big success, uh, you know, from before? I think so. I think there is a, there is a bunch of, I've, run, I've heard a couple of Steve Job talks and speeches where he talk, where he's chatting about how his failure, he draws the ties of how the failures 
contributed to successes. Mm -hmm. And I think those are often overlooked until you failed. And then you have to view someone like Steve Jobs and say like, oh, he only got to where he was because of, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the reasons is like a shame factor, right? I think people get scared similar to what you said in the intro, right? When you see Onward, now you feel this thing in your gut, which is like, ah, I fucked up, right? Yeah. And that's a terrible feeling. Yeah. Uh, and I think getting past that takes a while. I think that until you have emotionally gone through, gotten totally over that experience, I think you try and avoid chatting about it in the zeitgeist. Yeah. And I, and I feel like it's also important to, you know, be able to like lay bare what the actual failure was and what the lessons were and not sugarcoat that and say, oh, well, you know, I, I failed terribly running this company and lost my investors a bunch of money. And, but then that was all for the best because blah, blah, blah. Because in the, in the middle of that experience, from the time you start feeling like you're going to falter, all the way through to the next time you have a success. If you're like a high driving person, you feel pretty shitty. It's, it takes a long time and a lot of retrospective to be able to say like, oh, that failure was clearly in service of this particular success. Um, and I, I want less sugarcoating, I want more honesty. So in that context, um, let's talk about a failure. Yeah, um, so I'd say, I'd say grace is my largest failure. Uh, so direct to consumer funeral company, right? And that meant a lot of different things. We pivoted three different tr times trying to find a business model that we saw, uh, had extreme like CAC to LTV validation early, which I don't know if everyone's techie in this community, but it means, uh, do I make a lot of money from the people that we're paying to acquire? Mm -hmm. Right. And so is it, is it, is it, is it, a, is it a pretty profitable business from day one? And we, we, um, we searched around a lot. We tried a bunch of different models and, um, what we found for us and maybe because it was a lack of focus, but there was nothing that we saw early enough that we could look ourselves in the, look at ourselves in the mirror and say, Hey, this business is going to skyrocket profitably. And, uh, because of that, we just didn't move forward after two and a half years. Uh, and, and so what was, um, can you describe the, time when you uh, were going from like a fear of it not working out to an ex an acknowledgement that it wasn't going to work out? Um, I say fear of it not working out um, was day one until uh, we stopped <laughs> working on it, right? I think, I think there's, I think it is, to your point, if you're not on the precipice of failure, you're not doing something that's probably worth your while. And if you're not aware of the probability of failure, you're, you're insane, right? Like you have, like, and if you're not scared, like you should be mildly afraid of that. Cause in yeah. a way that fear should be exciting and motivating. And although it's super angst ridden, it should be a thing that causes you to, you know, work 60 hours a week. Yeah. Well, also I, I really, um, you know, to that also from my kind of public speaking work where one of the things that I've, I've often talked to other speakers about is the fact that I am very aware that I'm nervous before every talk. Like there is a change in my, um, you know, in my body, there's a change in my, like, you know, neurology associated with doing that talk. And it's not that I'm afraid that the that I'm going to screw up the talk because I'm actually, you know, feel very confident in my abilities to speak, but rather that the audience won't get from it what I want them to get from it. So, so what's mm -hmm. the, like, you know, a pedagogical value of doing the thing that I'm doing. And so, um, but, but instead of like, um, trying to tamp that fear down or protecting that, pretending that that fear is not real, 
what I've taken to doing is actually saying, oh yeah, I'm really afraid of this. Like I'm having a natural reaction. This is anxiety provoking, but I'm going to be okay. Kind of thing. Um, how, how did you, after the, after grace, um, how did you tell people that grace wasn't going to work out? It's so funny you bring this up because, um, going back four sentences ago, we, I, I chatted with my therapist about this last week, actually, where I was talking about how before I public speak, I have this sense of nervousness and we talked through the importance of acknowledging that emotion, right. And how it actually allows you to, to almost leverage as, as a tool, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so yeah, therapy, but, uh, <laughs> going on to, uh, the, you asked like the phrasing mm-hmm. and what, and how I spoke about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the first chats were with the board and then the investors, right? I mean, the employees already knew we were a super transparent community that could have the whole time. Um, it was severe honesty. So I think a lot of times when people, I think, especially with, with your investors, there's nothing more important than being very honest about, about what you went through. And I think throughout the entire journey, my investors knew the pivots we were making. They knew everything that was going on. They knew the probability of the success, um, and when it came time to tell everyone, hey, this is no longer going to work out, I talked them through what I was feeling, which I think was really important for me. Because I think it's unfair, right? Investors, if you fundraise from people who are rooting for you and for this, you know, positive outcome of, a, like, hopefully a liquidity event, right? These people want you to succeed because often because they like you, you know? And, yeah, like, you're yeah. friends with them, right? And, and right. you went through the same thing. You raised from onward from people that you loved. Yeah. And it's important to let these people know, like, hey here's what I'm scared of. Here's what, because these people kind of like they wrote a check and they signed up to go through this journey with you. Um, and I found when we ever, whenever we tried to, whenever we lacked transparency when how we, with how we were feeling, we didn't, the conversations didn't go well. And whenever my co-founder and I were totally honest, the conversations were amazing. And we walked away being like, Hey, this is a person that if we start another venture, I would love to have them invest a bit again, or give them advisory equity. Um, and I'm so glad that I've gotten close to this person along the way. Um, and so I think for us to answer your question, like TLDR is just, we were really, really emotionally straightforward with how disappointed we were that this didn't work out, which yeah. I think is very, yeah. Are you naturally good at expressing that to people? So s- setting aside the, the grace piece of it, are yeah. you able to just be like, you know, with, with your friends and with your family or whatever, just talk about your um, fears and your failures and your discomfort, or was this a different skill you had to learn to be able to like do this in, in a professional context as CEO of a startup? I think, I think I'm pretty emotionally communicative of my fears of the people in my life in general, but it was hard because you always question if, if you're allowed to take that same format and map it onto your career. Mm -hmm. And so it definitely was a learned thing. Um, so what, what was the, Fundamentally, in that process of figuring out, you know, getting to the point where, you know, Grace wasn't going to work out, wanting to, um, you know, start wrapping things up. Um, what was the hardest thing about that experience for you? Because it sounds like you were very comfortable with, you know, talking honestly about your feelings with people. Uh, um, saying goodbye is really hard, uh, right? So, um it doesn't, it does me a disservice to downplay the, it does my team and my investors a disservice to downplay the fact that me and this co-founder of mine and my investors spent two and a half years, the majority of our lives of those, the majority of our days during those two and a half years were dedicated to a thing right. and that thing didn't work out. Right. Um, 
And so the hardest part was finally saying, we are no longer working on this. This thing is not going to succeed and we are moving on. And that was hard to get to. Yeah. I, I, I echo that, that the conversations with, for me, the conversations with everybody, um, you know, like when, when we brought team members on board, you know, when one thing as a CEO of an early stage company, you're trying to get people to come for less money or for greater risk than the jobs they're doing before. And so, you know, you have to like sell people on the vision. Like, hey, if we do this, think about all the good we're going to do in the world. Think about all the money we're going to make. Think about how this will, you know, empower your future. And then having to turn around and like have the opposite conversation being like, all those things I promised you, um, or not promised, but all those things I, I got you excited about and that drove you to make this choice, um, you know, are now no longer true. That's a, that's a hard, yeah. it's like breaking up in a relationship. It's, it's hard. Yeah, I uh, I totally totally agree. I think for for us, a lot of it was we. I, I remember I had one conversation six months before we decided we weren't working on it anymore with a specific investor who he were on the phone and he was like, "Hey, you know, Alex, uh, if it's time to move on, it's good. Like right. you can you can move on. You know, like we're I, like I know you've worked your ass off for this. I know you moved out to L.A. You try to make this work." I like, I'll support you through your next thing, but like, don't waste your time, you know? And why didn't you do that then? Why did you spend another six months? Uh, it's hard to listen to that. Like, that's a hard thing to hear, you know, because part of me thinks in my head, I should still be selling him on the vision. You spend so much of your time to your point, selling employees and selling investors and selling yourself on this working out. Um, you're supposed to be a little irrational, right? Yeah. Right. Well, and, and they teach you, I don't know who teaches you this, but it feels like it's in the zeitgeist that many really successful entrepreneurs succeed in spite of negative feedback from other people so that they, you know, they saw something that was true that nobody else saw and they persevered and that's how they became sort of successful. But in retrospect, cause I had a similar conversation with one of my investors in retrospect, uh, you know, it's like, those signals actually, you know, might be um, less noise and more reality. So how do how does one how does one actually like listen to that kind of thing? Or do you think there's no there's no way to listen to that? I don't think you're supposed to listen to it. I think you, I think you're supposed to try and gather as much objective data as you can and then make a decision. Um, because there will always be people who like told Travis to shut down Uber, right? right. There's and and if that if Uber had failed, then you know retrospectively, he would have said, you know, fuck, I should have listened to that person. Right. 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 Um, right. Yeah. It's, uh, so, so in thinking about the lessons from grace and thinking about the things that happened have happened for you since grace, you, you've done some cool stuff, uh, in the time since then, uh, what do you think has been the most, um, kind of powerful lesson that you've taken away or the way in which it's, it's most affected your life? So I think there's two buckets. There's, you know, what did I learn from the grace experience from a functional standpoint, like a tactical standpoint. And I think for me, that was, uh, how to run an online marketing team, how to run a product team, how to fundraise, mm -hmm. how to rally a group of people around funerals. Like, oh, there's nothing harder to get people like there's yeah. like getting a head of engineering to lead to, to come work for you is, like, at a funeral company. I mean, yeah, no, yeah. I'd argue that it's harder than addiction. Game. Yeah, um, you're probably right. Was, no, no, you're, you're almost certainly right. It was really hard. And so rallying our team around that and rallying myself and getting motivated about something that was so sad every day was really hard. And so tactically, I learned, like, if I can do that, I could probably rally myself around anything else, you know, that actually is exciting. Um, and so 
Um, I think functionally I learned like a bunch of skill sets that were really cool because we were working so hard, so many hours, you just, you, you're, the time it takes you to learn things is reduced because you're working so aggressively at accomplishing a goal. But then I think the more qualitative things that have definitely changed my life and I've already seen success from them. Uh, I think people often say, do something you love. And it's this cliche that gets thrown around. And I think I started to look at that as more of like an ROI driven thing and like why that actually matters. Right. And so if you think about it like this, you only have so many swings right throughout your life, career swings. And if you're in the startup world, you should always be swinging things that could potentially fail. And, um, you should be swinging in a way that gives you the highest probability of success. And one thing that will give you a higher probability of success is if the thing that you're swinging at, when you compare everyone else who's working on that same problem as a cohort, um, when you compare yourself to them, if you're emotionally motivated in a way that is unfair and cheating, that is awesome, right? So if you're doing something you love, you actually derive right. more energy from the thing than you're probably putting out into it. And if the other, like 90% of the people in the cohort that are working on that problem aren't, don't wake up every day thinking about this thing anyway, right. um, like you're going to beat them. And that is such a cool, cool feeling, right? I jumped into this company, Wisecrack, and I fucking love it. It's amazing. And I jumped into it a year ago, knowing nothing about media or content, but it was this itch that I always had this thing. I want to learn about how the space works. And I am doing great. And the company's doing amazingly. And I'm so happy. And I could stay in the space forever. And it doesn't feel like work, which is so, so great. You know, it's interesting because as you're talking about that, I... Um you know, I, I've, I've often believed that relationships that end, any kind of relationship, but particularly romantic relationships, in the period right after the end of a relationship, no matter how successful it was, there's often, at least for me, there's often an instinct to swing the pendulum in the far opposite direction. You know, like I had a very long-term relationship in which we, um, you know, in which we didn't um, fight very much. There was a, not mm-hmm. a very combustible um, scenario. It was very stable. And I wanted that in reaction to what my childhood was like growing up with my parents, which was very unstable. So then I wanted this like really stable thing. And then after that, I was like, oh, I want to find all the instability that I, that I can because I, I want to feel this, you know, thing that I didn't feel. Do you, how much do you feel like Wisecrack and your work, your creative work, the things that you're, you know, invested in today, um, how much do you think that failing or how do you think failing at grace enabled you to do that? Because you've always been funny and you've always been brilliant. You could have done these things prior to grace. Um, thank you for reading the funny and brilliant words that I messaged you on Skype to say. Um, <laughs> I believe um, them. You know, I'm your big, I'm your big fan. Um, I would not be where I am today and I wouldn't be so, I hate using the word happy, but I I feel super fulfilled and really happy and I'm very fortunate. And I know that I wouldn't be there had I not gone through grace. I would probably be um, running sales for a larger startup in a thing that I don't really care about, making a good amount of money and going through life complacently successful. Um, And I see my friends in a lot of those positions and it's like, I don't know, they don't derive as much joy out of life as I do. And I think, um, after grace, I took some time off to kind of think what mattered to me. And I read this like designing your life book and it's some book out of Stanford. It's amazing. It was incredible. Um, it's super, super, um, it's incredibly actionable. It's not like a, it's not like just a mental reframe where I walked away with 
uh, or like on paper, a physical filter of here are the types of things that I, here's my vetting process. And so I was approached for four different jobs after when I was shutting down Grace that were all awesome jobs. Mm-hmm. And then um, I said, no, like none of these passed my filter. And um, this filter is only allowing these types of things to come through. And I would not have that filter had I not started Grace because it wouldn't have been important for me to understand the brevity, I guess, of, of life, right? It, it was almost like a mortal experience yeah. for you in a way. Like totally, you, right? Because two and a half years that. of your life pass you by and you're mm-hmm, like, fuck, mm-hmm. like that was... That was that took a lot of energy and it took away one of my swings. Right. Did you did you fantasize while you were at Grace? Did you fantasize about what you would do in life after when the company's successful and you have large sums of money? Uh, not really. I don't. Money doesn't really motivate me very much. It's a thing that I realize I like I need because because like, like you got For the stuff, freedom you got or whatever. Yeah. Got, yeah, it's freedom. Yeah. Like the freedom is what motivates me. Um. I more saw this as being uh, a task to accomplish successfully, which is probably the wrong way to approach a startup. And I think one of the re- many reasons that Grace failed is because although I really wanted to fix the end-of-life space because it's so fragmented, and I encourage a lot of people to take stabs at it because I think it needs a lot of help, mm-hmm. and you're helping people during one of the most difficult times in their life. Um, that being said, I didn't have uh, a strong enough internal motivation um, to drive me towards it, something that... It wasn't a thing that I woke up every day thinking about, right. and I think I think that that is um, that's important. I don't think I answered your question. That, no, no, no. Actually, you did. I, I guess the the different way to, to ask it and from a different path is okay. So you're doing this much more creatively driven stuff, which you're good at, um, and you're loving, and you're really enjoying. Were there inklings of that prior to Grace, and and if so, what do you think stopped you from? I guess you've already answered this kind of mortality thing, but but what do you think stopped you from doing that thing before this experience? Like, why why didn't you do yeah. writing and comedy and go work in media when you you know when you graduated from school? Um, I think I wasn't exposed to it. I think it was it might have just been an exposure thing. Um, my family, none of us are in entertainment or media. Uh, no one in my any of my social circles was by any means connected to the space. Um, and so it took, I had a hint of it through moving to LA and then being in a relationship with someone who was in entertainment and I learned about it more and more. And although I consider myself risk averse, I don't think, or sorry, risk loving, I think I'm more risk averse than I'd like to let on. And I wasn't willing to just dive full speed into a world that I totally did not understand at all. So that, that's interesting, right? Because I yeah. feel like I also present as a very risk-loving person. And if you look at my career and the choices that I've made, it's full of really big swings. Um, but internally, I you know, have this kind of like immigrant Jewish refugee mentality of like, you know, trying to create some semblance of stability, um, you know, against that, that backdrop. And, and I've fantasized a lot about like, okay, with unlimited resources and unlimited freedom, what are some of the things that I, you know, that I might do with that time and energy? And I feel like that's actually really um, counterproductive thinking. It's like fantasizing about winning the lottery. Like, that doesn't get you any closer to winning the lottery. And it doesn't get you any closer to your dreams of, you know, what it is that you want to do. It's like, takes actual action. And so, here, an interesting thing maybe you can provide insight on. So... Stand-up comedy is generally considered the one of the riskiest possible performing arts 
choices that you can make because often the audience is like, uh, you know, wants to tear you down. Unlike a public speaker where the audience wants to build you up, uh, in, in standup, often the audience wants to get into conflict with you. Um, that seems like tremendous risk-taking activity. If you could say something to your pre-grace self based on this experience that you've had, so if you could go back and, and leave like one message for the Alex Kruger before grace, what would, about risk and about failure and, and trying to do what, what matters to you, what, what is it that you would say? Um... I know, tough question. Yeah, super tough. Um, I think it would be try try more stuff without without. So I have this thing where when I get excited about something, I dive in and it's all consuming, which is which is good for great for startups. Mm-hmm, yeah. Because um, um, I feel that committing to something half-assed just doesn't really yield the result you're looking for. Like the lack of focus, you know, just you don't get the. It's not a really valid test of yeah. Can you do this thing? Um, I think that one thing I learned after Grace was I, I took a lot of chances swinging mildly at different things, which was really good for me. It was how do you have, how do you set up discrete tests, not to make it like so methodical, but how yeah, do you set up sure. discrete tests in your life? So, so Gabe, you figure out if you do like public speaking or you do like storytelling or you like writing or you like going to healthcare, how do you explore these things from almost like a, like a, um, a self-directed internship perspective where you're say, Hey, I, I spent two months mm. doing this thing. And I learned, here's what I like, here's what I don't like about it. And I think that that is so important. And I would have told myself to be comfortable uh, with taking mild steps towards learning about the creative space without having the need to fully dive in. Interesting. Um, well, thanks, Alex. I really appreciate it. It's been a really fascinating conversation. You're, of course, so brilliant. It's, it's great to talk to you about anything. Um, but in this particular subject, and I want to also say how brave you are. You're like the first interview. Um, you're talking about, you're talking about failure, which many people really don't have the facility to talk about. So I'm, I'm super pleased. You want to tell everybody how they can follow you and, and LOLOL at all the work you do? Yeah. So I don't have anything that's laugh, like laugh worthy online. That's not true. Um, uh, I guess, uh, Instagram, uh, would be Krugs. It's K-R-O-O-G-Z. And you can see a bunch of basic pictures of me eating avocado toast. So. That's awesome. Okay, just <laughs> stick around for one more second. Um, so thank you, Alex. Thanks to all of you for joining. I'm hoping that we'll make this uh, philosophy or this fail cast happen uh, on the regular every week. I'm hoping to come to you with somebody else and, and some new insights, all aiming towards building a practice, uh, a structure, a corpus of understanding of how people take risks and deal with failure. And, you know, I hope that all of you out there that are listening and and interested in self-development, that you have your eye on a success, but you have your heart in taking the risk to fail. I'm Gabe Zickerman. I'm at G-Z-I-C-H-E-R-M on Twitter. And I'll see you next week for the Philosophy videocast. If you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, leave a review, share with your friends, and come back next week for more real talk about failure. And remember, if you're not on the precipice of failure right now, you're not living to your full potential. This has been Philosophy with Gabe Zickerman.